This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. This is the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast, your chance to hear the latest community news, expert advice, real life stories and more. On today's episode, we're busting a few menopause myths with Dr. Rapinda from Health Bay Polyclinic. This means when are we going to go through it? What can we expect? What can treatment and management look like and more? Talking jobs, the founder of a new app is what exactly are young job seekers looking for today and how can you match make them with the jobs? How is she going on hand talking about the latest property market? Boom bust, what's going on? It doesn't sound like it's good news for renters. And Sophie Jones was on hand giving us some top tips for creating a sleep routine for little ones. By popular demand, we are talking menopause this afternoon. There seems to be a bit of a gap um, when it comes to experts' knowledge, um, awareness around this topic. So we're bringing one of the best in the business. Joining us from Health Bay Clinic, we've got Dr. Rapinda, who's a specialist obstetrician and gynecologist. And Dr. Rapinda, prepare to feel very busy for the next hour because I've got a lot of questions for you. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Now, I... I hope you're not offended by that kind of gap in experts, but I feel like the people who do have knowledge around menopause in the UAE are so busy right now because it seems to be so specialist, which blows my mind, given that this is something that every single woman listening today is going to go through. Why do you think there is such uh-huh. a, an absence of knowledge and awareness around this, this change that everybody goes through? So I would say that uh, there is a lot of changes that are taking place in women's body in the past few years. And it's also post-COVID. We have seen some irregular uh, pattern, which was not the usual earlier. Apart from that, uh, also with the current lifestyle changes and the increasing stress, we are coming across something that we call early menopause and premature menopause, which is on the rise. And also because the general age at which a woman attains menopause is also actually changing. In the former years, we used to say, oh, yeah. (laughs) In the former years, we... Go on. No, actually, Go ahead, before, no, before we before we start talking about what's changed, I would love it just if we w- wouldn't mind doing some basic definitions for anyone who's listening today going, I know I've heard of the term menopause, but I don't really know what it is. Would you mind explaining what happens in the body, Dr. Pinder, when we talk about this phrase menopause? That's right. Okay. So menopause generally refers to a term which means, which implies that a lady stops menstruation. And we ascertain that the lady has attained menopause if she's actually stopped her menstruation for about a year. So if there is no periods for one whole year, we say, okay, she's got menopause. We also ascertain certain hormonal levels beyond which we say, okay, now this is menopause. However, having said that, some women can have a reactivation occasionally of the ovaries. Mm -hmm. So you could encounter one or two cycles maybe in the following two years after she's had menopause. This is menopause, which means she can no longer have children beyond this point. So it's the end of that, and I hate the word journey, but that fertility journey. But let's talk about perimenopause because this is where... Oh my goodness, you Google perimenopause and the list of symptoms is absolutely overwhelming. Um, it still seems to be something that we're working through when it comes to testing and understanding the physical side, the psychological side. Uh, but when, 
Mm-hmm. Can we talk ages? Is there an average age that someone will go through menopause? So as you're saying, kind of medically defined as hasn't had a period for a year. What age range are we looking at for that stage, Dr. Rapinda? So it depends on the race. That's number one. But generally, we would say menopause occurs in 50s, usually in the early 50s. So we would say 50 to 52. Mm-hmm. Now, in the Southeast Asian uh, countries, this age has already uh, reduced. It happens around 48 to 50 years of age. And this is we've seen this in the past 20 years already. And uh, as I, yeah. And, then, and then, when, then with perimenopause, how many years before that kind of the finality, um, I guess, can people start experiencing some of the, some of the so symptoms that we're going to be exploring? When can that start? So that could usually start within, say, three years to five years before they actually get into menopause. Some, with some ladies, it's even longer. Crikey. Okay. So, so you were just saying earlier that we're seeing more premature menopause. We're, we're seeing that age come down. W- why would that be, doctor? What are some of the factors that might contribute to that? So premature menopause is something we do not always have answers to. In about 50% of cases, we're not able to determine why. But I would say that if anybody's got autoimmune disorders, for example, if you've got autoimmune thyroiditis or any any other autoimmune-related condition where the body's producing antibodies against itself and also maybe the ovaries or any other endocrine gland, that could be one of the main reasons. Or if somebody's undergone too many IVF cycles wherein we extract a lot of eggs and so that can push her also either into early menopause or premature menopause. And, of course, if somebody's getting into vigorous exercises, I always tell women that they should not go overboard, you know, with any exercises in high intensity, six to seven days a week is actually really not good for women because it actually shuts down the ovaries. So that and or smoking, you know, smoking for longer periods of time, all of this is quite toxic for the ovaries and the eggs. You're my kind of doctor, not too reasons. much exercise. <laughs> Dr. Apinda joining us from Health Bay Clinic today, specialist obstetrician and gynecologist. And I wanted to ask you about that. Some of the myths and misconceptions that you've heard over the years about the menopause. What comes to mind when I say that? The myths are uh, that everybody undergoes uh, hot flashes, night sweats. That's not true. There is a, a, I would say about 50% of women don't actually experience these symptoms whereas 50% do, and also not everyone has all the symptoms, so Mm -hmm. one does not really have to get scared. Uh, The other thing is that menopause only happens after 50s. Actually, it doesn't. It's happening even earlier right now. Um, That's interesting, because that that tends to be, it's that kind of, that lazy stereotype of, you know, a woman of a certain age looking a bit flustered in a meeting. Mm But, I mean, to be honest with you, I think a lot of people actually underestimate a lot of the psychological sides of um, of going through menopause. Um, And it's it's a really cruel irony, to be honest, that this is something that women in their 40s and 50s go through when they are Mm -hmm. perhaps at the peak of their career um, and workplaces aren't being accommodating to some of their changing needs and you know really staggering numbers certainly out of the UK about the number of women who are you know lost to the job market because they feel pushed out yes um can I ask you mm-hmm. when people come to you Dr. Apinda what kind of sense of desperation are you, are you getting from people who are really in need of support and solutions 
So I start picking up cases earlier of fiery menopause now because a lot of them do come and express their emotional need and that they're quite not feeling all right. Mm -hmm. Some of them could just come in with very vague symptoms such as, you know, not feeling quite there, having a brain fog, getting very irritable. And these can happen as early as it in late 30s. I would say about 38, 39, oh, early 40s. That's me. That's me. <laughs> the, the brain fog is real, though. It seriously is. Yes. I, I live in fear of is. repeating it conversations is. back to people who have told me that information in the first place. <laughs> so if you meet me and yes. I just look a bit vague, it's not personal. I promise. Um, <laughs> so yes. that's interesting. But I think even right. talking about it today, you know, and understanding that this could be something that, that can be addressed is actually really powerful. Yes, it can be, certainly. And we also have a lot of women now that come with sleep-related problems. Mm. Okay, for example, having a lot of interrupted sleep, um, not feeling quite uh, all right, even if they're sleeping very long hours and they're not feeling okay, so the quality of sleep. It could be something just as simple as, you know, thinning up hair and losing a lot of hair. Uh, you know, that can be an issue. You, you do the thyroid test and you do the iron and everything is all right. But they are actually the perimenopausal age group. And that could be the reason that they're actually having loss of hair, diffuse loss of hair and pinning of hair, apart from the mood changes. Dr. Pinner, can And you... of course, uh, sorry, go on. Yes. No, go on. Uh, irregular cycles. Yeah. Yeah. Irregular cycles, having spotting, the periods are not okay, and have feeling bloated all the time. These are other signs that do take place as well. Well, let's talk about how you diagnose as such, because I went in for a kind of a, just a general chat um, about a year ago and talking about some things I was going through. It was actually very hard to, to pin down through a blood test alone when it comes to hormonal screenings, because these levels fluctuate all the time. Um, So are Mm -hmm. you able to give a definitive answer that yes, you are going through perimenopause when some of these blood tests perhaps aren't as accurate as we'd like? So uh, it's really a collective. Mm. You cannot actually pinpoint and say this is it, but we would look at the symptoms. We look for the signs, then we do the blood test. And it's always everything uh, holistically when we look at what's going on. And then, of course, you know, the blood tests do help us because if somebody's got a relative decline in the estrogen, there's something called estrogen dominance. This doesn't mean that the estrogen levels are rising, but it is a relative decline in the progesterone with respect to the estrogen decline. So when the ratio reduces, we look at all of this. And then we correlate it with the symptoms. Then I would say, yes, okay, this lady could be going into this. There are other hormones that we do, such as the anti-mullerian hormone, which can also kind of indicate if somebody is now closer to uh, attaining menopause. But like I said, all of these can change subject to changes in the diet, changes in the lifestyle. And the most important I always stress on is hydration. Interesting. Okay. Dr. Pinder, let's go to the text line. Saying, hi, Helen, really keen on today's topic. I've been experiencing signs and wonder how long it normally lasts. Hot flashes, night sweats, and even pimples that never stop one after the other. And I know what you're going to say. You're going to say it depends. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah. Well, yeah. So again, it's, uh, we don't have a fixed rule. Uh, majority of the patients, a uh, majority of the women, I should say, uh, they undergo the hot flashes and night sweats for the, within the first one or two years. Okay, and this can start even before menopause. But once we've established menopause, that okay, she stopped having a period already, it can extend into one to two years beyond the menopause. That's the usual. Mm-hmm. However, in rare circumstances, we also do see, and I do have patients where they go in into the fourth, fifth year, and they do definitely need hormonal support. 
We're going to talk treatment after half past. Um, I want to keep going through as many messages as we can. Um, I wanted to yeah, get sure. this. This is from Chloe saying, um, really good timing, guys. Thank you. I came off the pill at the end of August and haven't had a period since. Turned 48 in October. I've had two months of hot flush-like symptoms for about a minute at a time, but they've stopped now. Other than increase in anxiety, which is actually getting quite bad, I don't appear to have any symptoms at all. How do I know if I'm going through the menopause? Anxiety is something that I hear time and time again. Um, is that something you've heard from patients or, or anecdotally as oh, well? Yeah. yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, well, I myself undergo anxiety because I know I'm into perimenopause. So coming to Chloe's uh, question, uh, I would like to ideally know how many years she's been on the pill because now her case sounds to me not really menopause. Uh, if she's still in her 30s or even 40s, she might have actually gone into something called post-pill amenorrhea. Okay, and she could have gone. So what's happening with her symptoms now is all these years she was getting an external supply of estrogen and progesterone mm-hmm. and her own ovaries, they have become, they've become quiescent. So they're not producing the endogenous estrogen and progesterone. And suddenly now when she's got off the pill, her body lacks the estrogen, lacks the progesterone. And hence she's coming up with the lack of estrogen anxiety, hot flashes, and she might feel that she's feeling like not herself at all. So uh, she needs to definitely see somebody. And first, you know, they, we have to get into the details of her history, how long she's been on the pill, what's her current age, do some blood tests, and we can reactivate ovaries. I do that for my patients because I get a lot of these uh, patients. So yeah. you say you can reactivate, reactivate ovaries? Yeah, we do. So, so when the ovaries get into a quiescent stage because of, you know, prolonged use of pills, and I'm really surprised because I come across many young women, they've been on the pill for 16, 17, 18 years, mm-hmm. nonstop. And this actually is not good practice. If somebody is taking pills for whatever reason, you should take it for two to three years and you should take a break for two to three months after two to three years, and then we start it. You need your own ovaries to get activated again, and then thereafter, it's always good to take a break. But if somebody's not taken a break for a long time, their own ovaries get into a quiescent state, which means when they finally stop, as in Chloe's case, we need to reactivate it. So we run some tests. It could take anywhere from three months to nine months to reactivate it, but then we can accelerate that process by giving certain things. Discussing the menopause today, something all women listening today will go through to a varying degree of symptoms, some physical, some psychological, and many of you reaching out for a bit of expert advice. Dr. Rapinder is with us today. She's a specialist obstetrician and gynecologist at Health Bay Clinic. And um, I hope you've had a coffee during the news, Rapinder, because we've got a lot of questions to get through. <laughs> I, I love this yes, from Charlotte. Thank you. And I'm sure you hear it all. I think this is one of the big kind of misconceptions about, about doctors is it? You're not embarrassed by anything. You've heard it all. Um, and this is a great opportunity. You don't need to make an appointment. You can just pick up your phone. Um, Charlotte, such a great question. Thank you for raising this. She's saying, can I ask about supporting our nanny? She's 52, reluctant to go on HRT, but is really suffering with hot flashes. What else can she do or take to manage the symptoms? Thank you, Charlotte. Brilliant question. What comes to mind here, Dr. Rapinda? So again, I would get into the history. Now, what also happens, as I mentioned earlier, is a lot of women don't actually adequately hydrate or, you know, they are quite, uh, they do not like to have the AC on. So hot flashes is something we can control also through hydration. 
And typically what happens to our bodies as we get older is we don't realize we're in a state of dehydration. So that's the first thing I would like to look at for her. And the second thing is, of course, I want to assess what is the severity of the hot flashes. We do have herbal medication, which can help. However, it could only help maybe in 50 to 60 percent of cases, not in all. And what increasingly uh, I do with my patients and a lot of patients to take is not the typical synthetic HRT, but we do have alternatives such as bioidentical forms of HRT, which works pretty well. And we really go on very, very low doses. Uh, so therefore, this is not really something that they need to worry about. And it's very closely supervised and monitored. And apart from this, we don't have, we don't go with this typical, even if she wants to go uh, talk about estrogen, we don't get synthetic estrogen preparations. We have something called selective estrogen receptor modulators that we can get. So we have alternatives, you know, to hormones per se. That she you, you mentioned supplements. And I'm just anticipating messages coming in, um, Dr. Pinder. Mm-hmm. What are some of the supplements that you recommend to help with hot flushes in particular? So, you know, ladies take uh, evening primrose oil. They can take St. John's wort. But uh, if they're doing any of these supplements, which are herbal, they need to talk to their doctor about it. Mm-hmm. Because if they're combining it with other allopathic medications, sometimes there could be some, you know, uh, adverse effects. So, again, whatever supplements they do take, it's always better to discuss it with the doctor. This is something, and then now increasingly we have something called DIN, which is an extract of all the green leafy cruciferous vegetables. Again, please do not take this without consulting your doctor. Then we have other, uh, you know, supplements such as maca root, which works well for some women. They have maca root powder, which works well. So we have quite a few of these in the market. Thank you for that. Um, A message from a husband saying, my wife is going through premature menopause in her early 40s. Is there anything we can do to slow it down? Interesting question. Um, I don't know, (laughs) Dr. Rapindel. I don't know know how this has been diagnosed. This is all the information we have. But Mm -hmm. I guess slowing, slowing down menopause? Yes. Yes. So we, again, over here, there's a list of supplements that we can try. We cannot make any promises. Again, first, the first thing is to investigate why she may be going into a premature menopause. Mm -hmm. The second thing to try and slow it down, we can start with supplements, lifestyle changes. And now we are getting into something called stem cell therapy, which is uh, something that we do. Uh, Again, it depends case-to-case basis, and this is something I would really like for them to come and discuss in person. But yes, we do have options. We don't have promises, but we have options. And some of the options can be promising also, depends on the case. I love this question from Chital, who's been in touch, saying, I heard that most women will go through menopause around the same time as their own mother did. Is this true? I find this interesting because I asked my mum at Christmas, I was like, just out of curiosity, Babs, <laughs> when did this happen? Even though I'm much more similar to my paternal grandmother in terms of just, you know, body type right. and, and whatnot. Uh, what, what, how, how useful is that? Is that something you as a doctor would ask? Yes, I do ask, but I would ask this if somebody's coming into me at an earlier age of menopause. So, yes, there is sometimes a link between when the mother attained menopause and when a patient will attain menopause at the same time. However, with the current lifestyle changes and other pressures and with COVID and post-COVID changes we've seen in the menstrual cycle, it's not always true. Because, uh, for example, if somebody's smoking or, you know, like I said, aggressively exercising or other stressors in life, she could attain that even earlier. And Or if she's diabetic in 
typically in women with diabetes, we see that they attain menopause at a later age. Wow, didn't know that. Interesting for this region in particular. So a bit of nature and nurture there, some environmental factors um, that can play a role too. Mm -hmm. Um, Coming back to, I guess, lifestyle factors, um, Karen's saying, can you recommend any foods we should be eating and avoiding at this stage in life? You mentioned hydration being key. What about foods? So in food, uh, well, if somebody's got a lot of hot flashes, I would like to say you want to have more of green leafy vegetables, cruciferous vegetables. You want to have nuts. You want to avoid a lot of red meat and a lot of seafood if you are a big fan of that, because that produces a lot more body heat internally. You want to do things like cooling your body down, and hence we stress on hydration. So the whole thing about hot flashes is it's thermogenic, which means you want to do everything to cool the body down. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to avoiding food, I would say avoid those kind of food. Maybe once or twice a week you could go in for the seafood and the red meat. But uh, generally speaking, lots more green vegetables and fruits and hydration. We've had another a message, thank you for that, um, on the pill. I think, that's, I think that raised a really interesting point there. Um, no name saying, I'm 45 and was on the combined pill until September when my doctor suggested me to stop. Um, was on it for 12 years. Since then, I haven't had a period. Is it possible that my periods actually stopped a while ago? Or could it just be that my period's taking a while to return after stopping? And it's actually nothing to do with the menopause. It is a confusing one because this listener may well have naturally stopped her periods during during that time. So she's 45. And I know you can't say yeah. definitively from one message on the radio, but yeah. <laughs> um, it, do, it does raise an interesting point that a lot of people might have perhaps yeah. gone through and not even realised. My sense would say most likely she could have her period if she waits a little longer. Uh, she should not get surprised if she does get her period. But I would want to do a scan. I would want to look at the size of the ovaries. I want, I want to look at the endometrium, which is the inner lining of the uterus. That is, you know, I want to see how thick it is. Is it building up? Is it growing again? Therefore, does she stand a chance to have a period now? Because 45 is what we will say, okay, she could have gone into perimenopause, which means she still can have her period. It's not that she can't. I wanted to ask you, lastly, about some of the treatment options here in the UAE. And you mentioned bioidentical um, treatment as well. Mm-hmm. And we saw big shortages across Europe of HRT um, and in its various forms. And I wondered about ease and access um, and just how... How practical is it to, mm. to, to get the, the medication that someone might need? Because a lot of people get inc- you know, increasingly desperate to have these hormones balanced yeah. out and addressed. Right. That's a very good question. So one is we do not have easy access to hormones, whether they are uh, synthetic or whether they are, that is the conventional hormones, the HRT, or even if it's bioidentical, that's more easily available. However, you do have to have a prescription. So it's not something you can get off the counter. Supplements you can get off the counter. Mm -hmm. But if you're talking about hormones, whether it's synthetic, as in the typical conventional ones, or if you're talking about the bioidentical ones, it is something you need a prescription for. Now, the conventional hormones, you can only get it to hospital pharmacies. Okay, if you're talking about bioidentical, then, you know, at the clinics as well, the gynecologists that are practicing anti-aging and uh, this sort of, uh, you know, dealing with the bioidentical hormones, then we can all prescribe it easy. However, again, it has to be supervised. So Dubai Health Authority is quite strict and rightfully so because any hormonal intake should be closely supervised and monitored. And can I ask then about insurance? Um, Is it covered by insurance? Mm -hmm. 
Unfortunately, no, it's mm. not covered by insurance. Even even the conventional, it's very difficult. However, if somebody does have perimenopause and if they come in with other symptoms, then we have ways of getting at least part of it covered. This is good information. <laughs> Dr. Pinder. Yes, um, and, and, and since I'm on the radio, I cannot speak beyond that. That's fine. I, <laughs> I appreciate you, Panda. But yes. for anyone that does want to come and see you, explore some of the symptoms, you know, talk to you about some screenings and, of course, treatments, um, you can be found at Health Bay Clinic. Which branch are you based at? So I'm at the old Verve Villa, not, with, not at the new uh, Women's Centre. I sit at the Verve Villa because this is where we do all. I deal a lot with perimenopause and menopausal women, and we have the radiology here. So if we need to do the breast screening prior to starting something, we do that as well. So since we have the whole uh, you know, gamut over here, if somebody needs to do a cardiology checkup, which is what I recommend for anybody getting into perimenopause or menopause, it's not just about, you know, having uh, your hormones checked. You need to have the breast checkup. You need to have a bone health checkup. You need to have a cardiology checkup. So there's a whole thing we do before we actually say, okay, you qualify now for this, this kind of treatment or not. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Really, really do appreciate it. Dr. Pinder speaking to us there on the topic of the menopause. All the very best to you and the team. If you want Dr. Pinder's details, you can just send me the word woman and I will send you that link. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Talking job market, job opportunities, changing the speed of light here in the UAE. So trying to keep up with the new careers is one thing, technology changing all the time, but also the way that business is done. Recruiters need to adapt too. Joining us now is Joseph Udu. He is the CEO of a newly launched job app. It's called Just Pro, which aims to help job seekers find part-time work and full-time careers across the UAE. Joseph, thank you for joining us today. How are you, sir? I'm all right, Helen. How about you? How are yeah, you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm very interested in this because, <laughs> well, honestly, every time we talk jobs on the show, I get so many messages saying, this is my challenge. This is what I'm struggling with. And actually on this very topic, um, we've had a message talking about to just today, someone's got a knockback, um, you know, become, you know, you, you are the closest, you're the next candidate, you are, our, you know, we're our second choice. But, but, but um, Joseph, kind of reflecting, I guess, on the last decade, what, what have you noticed as being the biggest changes in the employment industry? Um, basically, I mean, post-COVID, a lot has changed, actually. So nowadays we have, um, I mean, if I'm looking from the employer's perspective, I'm, I'm an employer, so and then I know how hard it is to actually find the right skill for mm-hmm. job roles. Uh, sometimes when I post jobs, you have a lot of people applying and there's more desperation in the market than there is actually for people with the right skills to actually get jobs. So like in the last 10 years, post-COVID especially, you see companies actually not wanting to have like full-time employees. People would rather outsource jobs, get freelancers, and then, you know, we're saving as an employer, you're saving. And at the same time, you know, the job seekers need to actually, there has to be like this improvement. People have to actually build on themselves, improve their skills, learn new things. Technology is changing a lot of things nowadays. You know, you have AI, IoT, I mean, I could just write a software and it's literally going to leave three of my workers, you know, unemployed. So there's a whole lot happening currently right now that, you know, it's really like a very tense market right now. So I'm going to speak from the perspective of an employer mm-hmm. looking for the right talent. So it's hard, actually. Sometimes I post a job and then you look at it, you got like, I post a job for a petition, then I have like 5,000 applications. <gasps> 
99% of them are not actually beauticians. Like people are desperate. So when they see, they just go to their sites, just click, 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 mm-hmm. click, click. So people are and taking then, that kind of scattergun approach of saying, if you know, if I think about the volume of applications I don't, something's going to stick to the wall. But, exactly. uh, but from your point of view, you're having to sort through a lot of irrelevant resumes and applications to, to try and Definitely. find the real talent. Uh, you've said that word desperation twice now, Joseph, and I think mm-hmm. that's that's very real. It's very real for a lot of people, especially when, you know, when you're in a part of the world where your job often secures your ability to stay in, the, in, in a country you know, through, through, yeah. that, through that visa. So it's interesting that you're mm-hmm. saying that a lot of people are, are reducing their own costs for, for visas and PROs and, and having part-time workers, more of that gig economy outsourcing. Does that mean people are having their own visas, their own freelance visas, so they've got the ability to actually get involved in that gig economy. Exactly. So this is the thing about Dubai. Now, Dubai is not like a cheap place to stay. It's not easy. It's not cheap to be here. So in that desperation, I think that the whole lot of people, and I mean, Dubai is great. I mean, the idea they came up having this freelancer's visa is a great concept. So, and in the end, you know, you the jobs you have now, if you want a job, you just create your own job in many cases. I know it's not really easy, but well, then this concept of actually being in that gig economy is what we thought about when we created JustPro, you know, because in the end, people have to actually go out there, find opportunities, and people looking for them should be able to find them. I do want you understand? To, yeah, I do. I want to ask you about what job seekers are looking for, apart from the obvious, which is paid employment. But, you know, we see a lot about, you know, studies around millennials talking about, you know, this, this is what... They want from a workplace, um, and I wondered what you'd seen in the region, if or if this is just a bit of you know lazy journalism around you know millennials are work shy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I met him. I met a twenty-year-old. I think about two days ago, and he, you know, he he writes Python, he writes Node.js from scratch, and we sat down for about thirty minutes, and I re- he just realized that basically uh, he doesn't even know what's really happening. So I introduced him to the uh, work environment, the structure we use, our technology and everything. And he goes like, you know what, can I just intern here for free? Like, I want to learn what's going on here. Wow. I mean, millennials, yeah, they're, they're, it, it's a young, it's a thriving generation. I've been coding since, uh, since 2001. So and then there's this, uh, a lot of things has evolved. So the young people really need to figure out where they want to be. Like, you, you, it's not just about getting a job. It's like, am I going to grow from here? Mm-hmm. Is this going to help me? Am I going to like be a better, different person two years working here? Mm-hmm. It's not about the salary. It's about basically like what am I going to get out of working here? Yeah, I, th- I mean that is something that people come to be coming back to regardless of ages. You know, am I doing a job or am I, am I working for a company that is aligned with my values and who I want to be in the world? And, you know, exactly. is kind of tied to my identity and that sense of fulfillment. And it's... It's, it, I think in some ways it's great because it means that companies need to ha- really have a hard look at their company culture. And we've talked about burnout an awful lot on the show in the last couple of weeks and across other shows here on Dubai I-103.8. So I think this is, you know, hopefully a, a bit of a turning point for some, certainly not all. But I wanted to come back to that application process, really, because uh-huh. I'm sure like a lot of, I mean, I'm an elder millennial, um, 1982 so I have my I have my resume you know, I don't even know where it is but it's, it's somewhere um, but it's you know it's a document that you know I have it in Times New Roman you know you know I update it when, <laughs> when, when necessary um, but, but I, I wondered how people can really up their game when it comes to applying um, what are employers looking for whether that is stylistically application uh, you know that process the the approach Joseph can you give any any insights there and I guess how your app is looking to address some of the pain points 
I'm just going to go straight to the point. So I literally started Jobspur about a month ago. It took me just three days to get to fully staff my organization. I have about 20 employees right now. Whoa. So what happens is that when I went out to commercial job sites, you know, there are like millions of people actually out there just clicking on everything. So what we did with Jobspur is we made it like, you know, the way you go on them, most of these shopping apps and then you want to buy grocery, you click, 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 and yep, then you yep, buy yep. That's what we created with Jobspur. It's shopping for job seekers. For employers, it's like, I want a salesperson. I get on Jobspur, I see all of the salespeople. And we have a very unique algorithm that actually narrows down, brings people to a particular skill set. So you can't have people applying for your sales job if they don't have sales background. Okay. So it's like, we take a seat, we take a resume, and on Jobspur, you just put up your resume. You don't have to do anything. Just put up your resume, go to sleep. And then it just keeps working. We keep recommending jobs and keep linking you up to employers. So, for, in, for instance, like you said, you have your resume and stuff. And if you had it on Jobspur, probably, and you have this great job, but you have a great job. Helen, I'm not actually. looking just before the going. <laughs> I'm happy in this seat. Thanks very much, Joseph. But, but, let, okay. but let, let, let's use a different industry as an example. Let's use... Uh, a graphic designer, for example, who can be, you know, employed in-house, but can also be that working as a freelancer. So let's say someone's a graphic designer listening today. What would the process be of getting on the platform and how could people find them and, and ultimately pay them? Oh, beautiful. That's a very good question. And using a graphic designer is the best time because usually it's very hard to find graphic designers. So you're a graphic designer. You get on any of these App Store, Apple or Google. You download Just Pro Jobs, set up a profile as a freelancer. You, you see the options. And just put up every single thing you do, corporate graphics, um, print, media, web, everything. And then instantly, once your profile is approved, because we literally approve every profile, we don't just throw profiles or make calls to everyone. Mm-hmm. Because we don't want people hiring you know, wrong, wrongly on the app. So, and then you set up your profile, and then that's it. So if you place the charge, for example, like you want to charge 20 dirham for um, X graphic, for example, people literally come on that place pick up that service, book you up, and then we'll create that connection between you and the employer. So what happens is we release your WhatsApp number, we release your phone call number, and then you can create an appointment. They can create an appointment. You can come over or they can come over to yours, and then you have a meeting. You talk about what exactly they want, and then you can build them on your own. We don't, take, we don't charge anything for that. We don't charge freelancers to be on the platform. You know, we don't charge any commission from transactions. We just create the connection between freelancers and people looking for them. Helen, I'm going to ask you this question, for example. Oh, crikey. I, don't, I like being the one asking the questions, Joseph. I'll do my best. <laughs> Go on. Okay, let's say, let's say you're looking for, like, I mean, you, you, wanna, you, want, you, you have, like, I mean, we know we have some other apps out there in the market, but then I'm talking about individuals. Like, if I have a plumber on my app, you be the plumber will be charging you, and the plumber will be in earning the income for themselves. They're not paying to one corporate structure that gives them a minimal salary at the end of the month. The plumber is earning directly. I don't take we don't take any commissions. We don't take anything. We just create that connection, and then we are at the back end making sure everything is right. Is this customer satisfied? Did this plumber deliver to specification? That's what we are there for. We're like the middleman who makes things happen. How do you ensure that everyone is legal and covered and able to work here in the UAE and fulfill some of the jobs that you're looking to kind of matchmake them with? And that's exactly the very good question. So, you know, we do, I mean, like I said earlier, I'm really glad with Dubai. That's really very smart. So with this freelancer visa, when you get on the app and you're a freelancer, you should have a freelancer license or permit. 
So, and there's a section on that app where you have to verify your profile. So we have this process where everyone on the app is actually legal and qualified to do that job. I mentioned earlier that we don't just approve profiles. We actually go through this process of tediously looking at everything, getting documents, getting passports, getting everything just to make sure the connection we create is actually a viable connection. So I mentioned graphic design there. What other kind of industries have you got represented now, whether it is jobs or indeed job seekers? Joseph, who, what kind of uh, areas um, are you looking to address? So we have about 450 job titles. You're a radio presenter. Great job, like I mentioned earlier. I'm a software programmer and also an entrepreneur. So I'm, I can do sales. I can do um, software development. So on my app, on JustPro, what happens is when you come in there, we take a look at your resume when you post it in there, and then we see all of your strengths. This is a special, unique algorithm that we created. We look at all your strengths, your past job experiences, everything you've done in the past. We take a look at all of that, and then we recommend you directly. So there are about 450 job titles and about 18 different freelancing categories. Uh, including professional models. Like if you're a model, you're pretty and you want to be a model, you can actually just get in Jasper and then people are looking for models every day. Joseph, we run out of time. Thank you so much. For anyone that does want to check out the app, find out more whether it is that, you know, they're looking for looking for people or they're looking for, for work, what's the best way of checking it out? Oh, if, you have, if you're on iOS, which is Apple or Google Play, you just get on the search and look for Just Pro Jobs. If you're looking for a job, it's Just Pro Jobs. Literally just professional, so I just we have like the abbreviation just pro jobs. Joseph, thank just you said. so much. It was really, I mean, impressive to get it together so quickly and clearly addressing something you believe is a bit of a gap in the market. So if anyone wants those details, you can just send me job. I'll send over the website so you can have a nosy. Uh, Joseph speaking to us from Just Pro. We are tackling, talking, baby and toddler sleep now with Sophie Jones, a qualified childcare professional with decades of experience. I think crucially she's a mum herself. So been there, seen it, done it and has helped countless families both here and the UK with all sorts of different issues from sleep that we're talking today, but nutrition, behaviour and more. Sophie, how are you this afternoon? Hi, Helen. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. What's keeping you busy right now? What are some of the common concerns and questions you're getting from the community here in the UAE? So it's always sleep. Sleep is always a big one. But I think that um, there are many topics that kind of all roll into one. So I think if your child's not eating well or um, you know, is stimulated or there are other problems in other areas, then sleep's going to be affected. So I think it really is looking at everything holistically. Quite agree. Let's talk then a little bit about your approach when it comes to, I don't know, do you call it sleep training? Sophie, how do you, how do you uh, kind of explain a little bit about your philosophy around it? Yeah, so really, as I said about kind of looking at things holistically, I think that's the most important thing. And that's what I like to do. I'm not just looking at sleep and tackling sleep, because I think there's always kind of bigger issues there. And um, if your child is hungry or not getting quite the amount of nutrition that they need, or they're having too much milk or whatever it may be, we need to address that first and then help the sleep. Um, And also it's working together with parents. So I think it's really important to 
first of all, establish a really good relationship with the uh, families, uh, work out their parenting style, what they want to change. You know, mm-hmm. some people don't want to uh, change uh, certain things. So it's working out what parents want as well and working together to come up with a solution. Yeah, I think that's interesting because there can be a few different schools of thought. And if, if you know, if you are going to an expert, it's for it's for good reason. Um, but sometimes if their philosophy doesn't fit yours or you're only able to work within, yeah, as you say, kind of your values and what you feel comfortable with as a family, then... Um, you know, it's just simply not going to work. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about when you recommend starting a sleep routine for a new baby. We can all read the books during pregnancy and then all oh, the book tends to go out the window when little one comes home. Um, and routine, I personally found it helpful as long as it wasn't too prescriptive. And for me, it was like finding that balance. But a big, a very difficult thing is knowing when you can start to introduce, you know, feeding schedules, putting them down at the right time. What does the baby's developing brain tend to lend itself to when it comes to introducing that, Sophie? Yeah, so I think at around uh, around three to four months is when you can start to put a very loose routine in place. So before that, um, a baby's uh, body clock, their circadian rhythm hasn't yet kind of gone into sync and then they haven't developed that and matured that yet. So it's really hard to get any kind of a routine in the first few months. So mm-hmm. that's more about relaxing, bonding, feeding um, and getting to know each other. But from three months plus, you can really start to see a kind of routine developing naturally, but also you can start to um, have some space in between feeds. Um, You start to understand the baby's cries more, and that's when you can start to develop a routine. But as I said, a very loose routine. Usually around six months is when you can see something really, really, um, really develop when uh, solids are introduced. We're talking sleep on the show this afternoon, baby and toddler in particular with Sophie Jones. She's a qualified childcare professional. She does, of course, help with sleep, but with that holistic approach, looking at the impact of good nutrition on sleep, on behaviour as well. Um, I wanted to ask you, Sophie, about the dreaded leaps. And I wondered when we start to see significant leaps in children when it comes to sleep in particular and what determines when they happen. Well, I think the biggest leap is obviously when they uh, develop their own body clock around, around three months. Um, and you'll see a massive change in the way that they sleep at night. Um, and hopefully they'll start to sleep longer periods at night. But from, from at every stage, there's, uh, there, there are changes to sleep. And every milestone they go through and every different skill that they learn, you may find you have a few disrupted night's sleep, but it, it will smoothen out and it will get back to normal as long as you've got a good routine in place. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the text line. Um, A message from Alicia saying, how do you know when to drop a nap? Also, can I count sleeping in the car or buggy as a proper nap or does it need to be in the cot? Son is 18 months old. Thank you. How can we help help Alicia? Tell us then what are the signs that you need to say bye-bye to to one nap? It's a sad time when you say goodbye to both. (laughs) It really is. It's a very sad time. I remember it well. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I think that when um, a child is taking too long to fall asleep for nap time, that is probably the number one. When they're upstairs singing in their cot and they can't fall asleep, it's because they're not tired enough. Um, And then the second clue would be not falling asleep well at, at, at bedtime. So if bedtime is taking longer than, say, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, they just can't fall asleep, they're not tired enough, then it's time to think about dropping one of those naps. 
Um, and I think that the at 18 months, um, your child will probably be only having one nap. Okay, hope that helps, Alicia. And a message here from Ellie saying, great timing, hi both. Just recently moved to Dubai and totally confused by what my children should wear to bed. We've got a five-month-old and a three-year-old and I worry about the AC being too cold. It's on auto to come on at 24 degrees, but what should I be dressing them in and having on the bed? I think this is such a good question because all the books that I read were very much looking at, you know, data and temperatures from other parts of the world but as Ali's correctly pointing out you know we've got some control over that with with air conditioning um and I get cold now you know so what does that tend to be a general rule about the number of layers and I guess bed clothes as well yeah, so I mean, I was looking at the temperature being 23 degrees around that. But of course, everyone's AC unit is mm. different and more powerful. And so that can be an issue. But I think you've got to kind of trust your uh, your baby or child as well. Are they waking up sweaty? Uh, are their um, hands or feet cold? You know, uh, think about that. But also, how do you feel when you sleep? Are you are you cold? Are you waking up cold? Um, but I would I would say generally, I would put on uh, one layer, a second layer or a sleeping bag. And I think a sleeping bag can be great because it can really um, uh, keep them at the right temperature throughout the night so they're not kicking off blankets. Hope that helps, Ali. All the best and welcome to Dubai. Um, Sophie, I'd love your insights on why little ones tend to wake up in the night and how we should respond. And this is very much going to depend on the age of the child, she said, who had a five-year-old tiptoeing into my room at 4.30 this morning. Um, but for the, let's say, the under twos, what are some of the common reasons that they, they might be calling out and, and wanting our attention? Yeah, so the uh, for under twos, I think, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a broad subject mm. and I think you need to work out why they're waking. And I think keeping a diary really helps of, of how many times they're waking, what time they're waking. Is it consistently um, kind of 11 o'clock or one o'clock in the morning? You know, what are they wanting? And then looking at their day routine to make sure, are they getting enough nutrition? Are they having enough protein and carbs to keep them full during the night? Um, also milk amounts are you giving them too much milk so they're actually their bladder is starting to work in the night things like that so I think it's good to rule um, hunger out um, but also it's looking at is it behavioral have you actually got into a bit of a habit of them coming into your bedroom and then you ending up you know putting them in your bed if so how do you want to tackle that do you want them to sleep in your bed or do you want them to sleep in, in their cot so it's making a decision on that and then sticking with it we made a, I don't want to say a mistake, but it was an interesting experiment um, about baby massage and incorporating that into kind of a wind down routine with our, with our little one when she was about, I'd say maybe about 18 months. And then she'd wake up in the night basically demanding a massage. <laughs> like, no. Yeah, exactly. They'll take anything no, they can get and they'll, no. they'll run with She's it. Like, massage! Yeah. Like, this is the most Dubai baby ever. Um, I would like then, we've only got a couple of minutes, so this is a, a topic we'd like to expand on in a future, t- future day, but about co-sleeping. I really just want to get your take on the safety aspects because it's such a personal decision. I personally didn't feel comfortable doing it when they were little, but now I love a snuggle most of the time. Um, what do we need to know about co-sleeping when it comes to babies and toddlers in particular and making sure that they are safe as a, as a priority? 
yeah. So I think um, co-sleeping is absolutely fine as long as you are happy with it and um, you're all sleeping. I think when co-sleeping becomes an issue is when your child's not actually sleeping and then therefore that's affecting everything else, mood, behavior, mm. um, appetite, etc. But also you're not sleeping, so you may not be the best parent that you can be the next morning. Totally. So I think that it depends on how it's affecting you. In terms of safety, you know, of course, making sure that um, uh, you no pillows, um, no heavy duvets, making sure the room is the right temperature, um, that you don't smoke. Um, you know, there are lots of, there are, and obviously, um, a bed that's close to the floors in case they may roll. But I think that there are so many amazing options with um, co-sleepers and side-sleeping side beds mm-hmm. that there's, there's great alternatives to them actually being physically in your bed with you. Thank you so much for your time, Sophie, today. For anyone that wants to reach out, couldn't get to a question today, for example, or just need a, talking through an issue that might be a bit too complicated for um, a text message, what's the best way of reaching out? Yeah, so on Instagram, Sophie Jones Parenting Support would be the best way. Superstar, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. If anyone wants to get in touch with Sophie, you can just send me the word sleep and I will send you that link. Sophie Jones, absolute pleasure. Here at Dubai Eye, we do talk about what you're talking about, and property always a hot topic, and certainly some hot prices around at the minute. Joined now in the studio by Harry Tugoning. He is the founder of Tugoning Property and Tugoning Maintenance as well, and thank you for making time in your very busy schedule. Oh, thank you very much. Running around like the proverbial... I made, made sure I was here early because these roads closing around the place. I know. Well, do I really do appreciate it because there's a, there's a lot going on in the world of property from news, developments. We're going to see what's, what your kind of read on the ground is. I wanted to ask you first, Harry, a little bit about the latest about making rental payments because I've heard about a number of tenants who are now paying via direct debit instead of checks. Is this becoming the norm, do you think? Is it becoming the norm? Probably not. But um, it is possible. It, they they um, launched a new scheme last week, the Dubai Land Department and Emirates MBD, um, to create a, a much better framework. I mean, Dubai, D- uh, direct debit has been here since 2014, but it's not been really used. It hasn't at all, whereas that was the thing for me, certainly in the UK, what, 15, 16 years ago, it would just, you know, it would just go out of your account. And then you come here and you're like, ah, behold... Yeah, my, my checkbook. You're absolutely right. I mean, the one thing I would say about direct debit is it's not going to change everyone's payments monthly. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to Emirates MBD to get a form last week just so I could have a look at what they were doing. And they've still got annual payments, six months, quarterly, quarterly okay. etc. And so that would also come down to your, your agreement with your landlord. Because presumably but, it's at the discretion of the agent and the landlord. It's not a given yet. No, it's not a given. And also the, the landlord needs to be um, proactive in this. They need to go to the bank, fill in the form first, then go and see their tenant, and then it goes on. I mean, obviously people who are doing one check, there's no, no incentive really to do it. You do your transfer or your check and send it cr- straight across to your landlord and you're done. Yeah. There's no benefit. Okay. All right. Good to know. Let us know if this is something that you are interested in or indeed it's already happened in your life. Now, one question we get an awful lot when we're talking about property, it's, it's people like you, the agents. Um, should we be paying renewal fees to agents? Text that came in earlier today, Harry Tregoning. What What do you say? Because I've had experience of both, you know, that being the case, you know, it's coming up. You know, I'll pop you over with the contract. You can sign it and you can sign a check for me. And then also just being a, a bit of a rollover. Well, there are two lines of thought on this. Mm-hmm. Obviously, from the agent's point of view, it's nice to retain, retain it, retain some income, build some retained income moving forwards. But you need to make sure your agent is doing their work for you, negotiating at a proper level. Mm-hmm. We, we don't actually 
do this ourselves. We feel that it's easier for a tenant to deal with their landlord and we get called in if we need to at that point because it seems ridiculous to make a nominal charge just for the sake of um, getting in. You know, you might not think I've done a very good job if I've charged you. Um, So that's one school of thought. The school of thought to the other is that you can go onto the RERA uh, website and download the latest uh, unified contract and you can fill it in yourself using a PDF editor and do your addendum and go along to your, land, to your landlord, get it signed. Speaking of contracts, a message here from Trent saying, repainting rental villa question. Contract doesn't mention repainting when the lease is up. We've stayed in there eight to nine years. Landlord's never paid for any internal repainting during this time. We've always paid for it. I always thought it was an old-fashioned rule the tenant needs to repaint the villa when they leave. Does Harry know? So the contract doesn't say anything. It's a tricky one, this. Mm, but with um, grey area. It, it sort of changes backwards and forwards. There is sort of unwritten rule. I mean, a, there's a sort of latest rule that somebody said that you had to pay when the, you exit. My, my view is always have a word with your landlord and see where they stand because you want to get your deposit back. Absolutely. And you can then take a view on what you're going to do. But in terms of, in terms of painting, you don't have to paint the outside. Painting the inside... I mean, there's always going to be a bit of wear and tear, but some Especially landlords... Eight, nine years as well. Yeah, some yeah. Land, landlords are pretty strict. So if you've met them before, then you, you know where you stand. Okay, have a chat. Have a chat, Trent, and all the best with the move. Let's talk moving. <laughs> there's not much around on the rental front right now. Um, which are some of the areas where you still think there's a bit of inventory and perhaps, dare I say it, some value to be had? Oh, no, he's making a face. I don't think, I don't, I'm not sure there's much value at the moment. I mean, this is such a great moment for Dubai as a town. You've got so many people coming here being caused also no one's leaving because if you look at our home countries it's not that appealing right now it's not very appealing is it (laughs) (laughs) my parents have stopped asking it's a bit of a muddle but but you know that's only for england but i'm sure other countries are equally unappealing at this present time so that's really usually the you know every summer and we've been having huge huge amounts of farewell parties but the last two and three years Mm -hmm. i don't think there've been any Mm -hmm. and uh, so demand is just extraordinary at the moment um, place of value. I mean, obviously, there's a bit of value the further out you go. Always the central bits are more popular. Um, I mean, there's still a bit of value in Damak Hills too, in places. But you are you're living a different life than say you're living in Satwa or. Well, it depends on Al-Kurama. your priorities, doesn't it? You know, this is the thing. You, yeah. you you make make your choices depending on your budget, your lifestyle, how much you want to be here, where you're living. You know, there's so many different factors. Um, a message has come in saying, "I've heard there might be a slump later in the year." Has Harry heard this? And is it better to wait to move? Time to get the crystal ball out, Harry. You're going. What's you I've never predicted, but I I don't think it's going to slump at all. I think uh, demand's going to continue. I don't think enough, many people will leave in the summer. And are already getting huge amounts of people making inquiries about coming in the mm. summer. So I can't see a big, a big change happening. Um, here's a question for you. If your best mate was moving to Dubai, let's say next month, what advice would you give them about the logistical side of, of moving to Dubai, but also where they sh- you know, should be looking and some of the processes that you know, people new to Dubai need to be aware of? Well, if you're moving to Dubai, um, the first thing you need to do is get on to your HR department and the PROs and make sure that they start processing all your paperwork as quickly as possible. Because as we all know, once you get the Emirates ID, that's the the golden ticket to unlock your life. You can open a bank account, you can rent a house. So you ought to be taking temporary accommodation while you go through this process. But temporary accommodation is also quite a useful time for you just to suss out the place. If you're looking at uh, the portals from abroad, you don't really know where these places are. Well, that's the thing. It's all a bit abstract, isn't it? Yeah. Very much so. 
Um, I mean, you can read as many guides as you want to areas. You can ask as many women on various Facebook groups. Yeah, no, no, I think <laughs> I all just endorse their own areas Absolutely. that they've chosen. But I mean, I mean, one thing that people do is quite often they'll look and they're looking for the cheaper villas and they'll look at somewhere like Murdoch. Mm-hmm. And then they arrive here and they realise that Murdoch's no good for their school at Dubai British School. And so they then have to work around that or their, or their job is a long way away from, from mm-hmm. town square. Mm-hmm. But they're great communities, all these places. And we, as we've always said, there's no SW1 in Dubai. So you need to live where it works for you, really. Mm-hmm. Um, a message here, no name, when they're saying, hi, guys, we're mo- due to move into a brand new villa next week and we've requested some snagging jobs be done. Smoke alarms fitted, intercon... Um, so intercoms and broken paving slabs repaired. Nothing's been done yet. I've got a sinking feeling that now the landlord has our money, they're never going to be done. Are we protected at all? I've got agreement on WhatsApp, but nothing's been amended in the contract. Time to get to, get onto your agent. That's what you really need to do. You lean on your agent. If you've paid him, you need to get on him. And if not, tell him you do his work and earn his money. Mm-hmm. That he, he's, he's hopefully brokered this deal for you to move in there. Now, if it's a brand new villa, you also have a bit more comeback um, because there's a, a year's guarantee of snagging from the, from the developer. So you, you can also point this out to your landlord so that when you, when you move in, he, you're not asking for him to do stuff straight away if you feel that he's being reluctant. But most times when you move into a property, your agent should have supervised most of the work to be done. The thing that caught my eye here was smoke alarms fitted. I don't think I've... I don't think we have smoke alarms in our villa. I'm just thinking like... Oh. Uh, it's time to get them fitted. I mean, it, that, they that, save that, lives. That, is this something that my, my, my landlord should have done or is this or is the onus very no, much on the tenant? Well, the, your landlord, when you, when you moved in, there were certainly no regulations then. Mm-hmm. Um, newer properties seem to be putting them in more and more. Okay, all I, right. I think probably new builds have that regulation. I need to speak to Trigoning Maintenance to get you guys over. <laughs> get, get, get on Amazon, buy some smoke alarms. Um, Harry, we're run out of time. We've run out of questions. Though. It's clearly a lot of people with a lot of thoughts about property right now. What's the best way of getting in touch with you, picking your brains and obviously availing some of the services over there? Well, um, if you look on our, our website, it's Trigoning.property or tregoningmaintenance.com and we have Instagram pages as well and get get in touch and a lot of people seem to be spending money on their houses and and upgrading them um, rather than moving because at the moment. there's nowhere to move there's to. There's nowhere to move. <laughs> Having a new bathroom, a new kitchen or whatever. And we seem to be busy. Do- we're very busy doing that. So we'd love to do a bit more. There you go. If you want Harry's details, drop me a little message saying property and I will hook you up. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.